Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, this is Michael Kilpatrick with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today I am joined by Sam McElmore, who is from Bountiful Harvest Farms. The farm was started by Sam and his wife, Isabel, in the spring of 2011 in Starkville, Mississippi. What started when a desire to grow vegetables for their family turned into a new career for Sam and an adventure to grow vegetables for the Starksville area. In the first year, the farm had two neighborhood garden locations and eventually ended up on a current location on Pat Station Road, where it could be, which is a more permanent, larger scale operation. And Sam, um, talk to us a little bit about the, uh, the, what you grow. Oh yeah, we grow a wide variety of vegetables. Uh, We grow mainly for CSA. So we have lots of salad greens, lots of lettuce, thanks to raise uh, lettuce class, um, microgreens, a big selection of those, different root crops, radish, carrot, turnip, beet, uh, of course, tomatoes, uh, peppers for a hot pepper sauce, mm. and uh, sweet peppers, eggplant, and quite a few cut flowers and uh, gotten into more herbs this year. Very so, cool. And how many acres is the farm located on? Uh, we're sitting on a larger property. Uh, we utilize like a two acre garden and an acre and a half surrounding that. And then a, a second two acre garden as well. Okay. Okay. And what was your background? Uh, so, you know, growing up, grandparents had gardens that I learned a little bit from, uh, you know, getting to experience hot peppers, uh, you know, licking my lips after eating a, a Thai chili with my grandfather once, mm. burning up the rest of the day, um, doing landscape maintenance through high school and uh, wound up going uh, through college for the landscape contracting program here at Mississippi State University and uh, worked as a landscaper uh, doing installation, irrigation installation, uh, you know, planting plans and planting plants and doing hardscape of different sorts uh did that for a little while and uh had been growing my own garden organically at home and uh hand tending and you know decided to dive into uh market gardening and it started with a tiny csa and have built it up very cool so let's talk about farming in the south you are in mississippi which is very far south. Uh, what are the, some of the challenges that you face? Uh, you know, we have pretty long summers, which are, are good and bad. Uh, mm. So there's a, uh, this past winter, it didn't even uh, get, you know, into the teens. But one time we had a real mild winter. So there's a lot of bugs that uh, can live through those conditions. There's a lot yes. of different diseases we could be getting with uh you know, we get at least 52 inches of rain a year. Uh, last year was closer to 72 inches. And, uh, you know, right now, today, we've gotten an inch and a half from Tropical Storm Zeta. And uh, there should be another, you know, half inch to inch more coming tonight. So, 
Yeah, I think some of that is headed our way. We have on the um, agenda the next couple of days to get a quite a large amount of rain as well. Mm -hmm. So you also, to the bugs, what are your main pests down there? Uh, it varies from year to year which ones are the worst. You know, of course, squash bugs are tricky if you try to grow squash. But uh, the worst one this year was the multiple types of cucumber beetles. Oh, um, yeah, they they worked really hard on, of course, our squash crop, our cucumbers, our cantaloupes, um, and they, you know, mildly affect some other crops, like even lettuce. They'll they'll get on, uh, but the the cucumber striped and spotted, and like there's nine different types of striped cu or cucumber beetle that we have around here. I did not um, know that. <laughs> and then you know, of course, like a soldier. Uh, aren't sorry not soldier army worms are definitely one that's every fall you got to be ready for those guys yeah um, and you know early spring we'll have a little bit of a problem with um, flea beetles especially in our asian greens I, I, you know if we grow hakara turnips they they love those for whatever reason yeah um those, that's kind of the worst of them, you know, shield bug here and there. They do a lot of damage on uh, some of our tomatoes, but um, it's, the worst one for us has been the uh, cucumber beetles and then the larvae of the, uh, I think it's the flea beetles larvae or some other spring grub. <laughs> and so when with that, we mean with the grub, it's attacking the roots of the plant? Yeah, it, it'll eat up the roots, especially of young seedlings. And then, you know, as they mature, then they they go from that grub to eating on the leaf. Yeah. Okay. So you got the bugs. You've got the heat and humidity during the summer. So do you pause it all? Do you change your crop mix during the summer? Or you just crank right through? Uh, the crop mix definitely changes. Uh, we do a lot of different summer crops, including like sweet potato and watermelon, uh, cantaloupe, a little bit of okra, uh, purple hole peas even. Um, to, and part of the purple hole pea is, you know, as having a cover crop during the summer and some some of those fields produce really well. But if it followed behind a, something that already had a lot of nitrogen, it it doesn't always produce as well. It'll grow a whole lot of vines, but not many peas. Um, we do three 10-week seasons of our CSA. And so we usually do take a break um, for August and September. Um, it's just so tough to have a lot of produce uh, that's good at, in August and September here, at least for us in the past, you know, because you've you've pushed so hard since the spring, you know, growing all through June and July. And it's definitely our hottest time our is typically in August. And uh, it's usually our driest time as well. And we're tired. And so we, we take a, a break from our CSA and, and have taken a break from our market typically at that time period. Um, and we'll do small, like small sales to restaurants and, you know, the occasional person that stops by during that time. But um, so that's kind of our, our break in, in the summer is August and September. And then we start back October through December with our fall CSA. 
Interesting. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about your, so that break is through that. And you also mentioned the peas and you said they <laughs> vine a lot if you have a lot of nitrogen. So you actually try to have them follow a crop with not a lot of nitrogen so that they don't put on those huge vines. Yeah, typically, although I planted them behind our uh, strawberries this spring yeah, and one plot did great and one plot didn't do well. And I think that it's because some of our fertilizer wasn't completely incorporated on the top of the beds uh, for our strawberry crop. And so it didn't, whenever we planted those peas, it was available then because we worked over the tops and it it really just, (laughs) it grew some massive vines, but no peas at all. Interesting. Okay. So soil type, let's talk through your soils because you tend to have a, more of a heavy soil down South. It is pretty heavy clay. Um, it's, we've got two different soils that we're working with between the two different plots. And um, our East garden is, is our newer plot and it's, it's way sandier, a little bit of a red color uh, tint to it. Um has like a six, eight pH. So that was, that's pretty nice. Um, and it has a pretty nice, it's been pasture for the years before we started using it. So it had a pretty nice loam, uh, organic matter built on top of it that we've been able to incorporate in. And then, you know, we're growing quite a bit on top of that. Yeah. Um, our other garden, our main garden is like a quarter of it is sandy. And then whenever we, built out this place uh in 2016 we had somebody come in with a dozer and remove a whole bunch of small sapling trees and they took uh you know probably 12 truckloads of the topsoil down the hill with all the yeah the trees the treetops and roots which was nice to get that cleared off but it, it it moved a lot of our good soil uh down further on the property and not really in the garden area and so we've been having to work to get that clay kind of broken up and, you know, aerated well enough to grow again and keeping it drained is, um, you know, it's a fairly flat two acre site. There's a little bit of slope, but it's mainly been us creating drainways to get the water off the, you know, off of the beds and we've built up raised beds, you know, just piling dirt. Yeah. You have Uh, pretty high raised beds if I remember correctly from being uh there. Yeah. And like, you know, in today's rain, it's, it's obvious of why we need them because there's, you know, an inch or so of water in the bottom of that trench and it's drain it's flowing, but you know, the, the amount of rain we're getting just filling that up. Yeah. I have um, the opposite. I have more of a Sandy loam on top of a gravel bank. So literally (laughs) we can get, you know, rain, 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 and it stays. Yeah. It it absolutely does not, uh, does not puddle on the surface. That's awesome. So your sweet potatoes, what are your varieties are you uh, working with for those? Uh, What I really like doing is the, it's an all purple and I got it a couple of years ago from, I believe, um, so true seed in North Carolina, and then they haven't had it again, but uh, it's a, a purple skin and purple, purple flesh. It's a little different texture than the Beauregards that we also grow, yep. which are your, you know, traditional orange flesh, uh, large potato. We, we didn't have any of the purples, just a few purples this year, but we typically have, you know, half of our planting in all purple and half in Beauregard. Okay. 
Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about equipment. So when you started off, I think you were more of a general, a BCS style farm. Right. Yeah. Even when we first started was, you know, just using a, a small Troy built tiller, uh, walk behind tiller. We did buy the BCS, uh, that was in 2016 and have really enjoyed using that, but we've also been using our landowners, um, he's got a 30 horsepower like garden tractor with a tiller on the back uh we've been able to pull a bed shaper with that as well and then he also has a a 60 horse john deere that you know can pull a larger disc or a larger tiller or you know the ripper yeah the potato plow Um, those are we actually yeah and we just got a uh an undercutter uh, ryan thiessen or thiessen undercutter from from tillmore uh I'm pumped up to use that on the carrots. Oh, you're going to love that. Yeah. This next, uh, I think if we can get another dry window uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll be, we'll be trying that out. So. Very cool. Now with the, the equipment um, you recently got that you also got one of the Tillmore tractors. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, the thought behind changing systems and more going to more mechanical cultivation. Yeah. So doing, you know, two separate two acre gardens, and especially with some of our larger crops, um, you know, we've been kind of focused more the market garden style for the past couple of years, but I've had a, a farm all cub that, you know, I've spent more time working on it than working with it. Yes. Um, you know, it's the same age as my dad. I love my dad, but he's had to have a valve replacement too. So it's like, you know, yeah. The, the things wear out. Um, and it, you know, every time that we were, uh, you know, trying to use it, it would, it would break down and something different, you know, it's not necessarily an expensive repair, but it's a repair when you needed to be working with it. Um, you know, that was a piece of it. Uh, I've had a seasonal kind of part-time job in the fall for the past, uh, like nine, 10 years now. And, due to COVID that job has, uh, has kind of dried up and uh, I've kind of enjoyed putting more time and effort in on, on the, uh, on the garden. And so that kind of played into the factor of, of going with this tractor. And another part was, you know, Tillmore offered uh, their once in a blue moon deal. Um, and that's kind of how I got into it was I was thinking about it, but I hadn't completely made up my mind on, on going that, that route with getting a tractor i was looking at the power ox yeah and you know when they offered that uh and i was able to to get hooked up with them and you know talking directly with liddell steiner himself you know i've i've probably had you know 10 different conversations with him the owner and you know he's answered every every question i've had you know helped me out with different tips they've got some good videos on on how to use it and or you know the different aspects of it and so um, yeah, so it kind of, I was ready to step up our, you know, and streamline our cultivation. Uh, you know, we've got so much area. I've, I'm, I've got two guys that work for me fairly full time. They're like 30 hours a week, 35 hours a week, but, you know, for us to manage it all and keep up with everything, it was, it was time to do something other than the walk behind, uh, you know, to try to keep the aisles clear and, Yes. So, 
Yeah, so they have two different systems. They have the Power Ox, and then they also have the four-wheel tractor. What's that one called? Yeah, it's the 520M. I, I don't know if it has another name other than that. The big <laughs> the tractor. Tillmore tractor, yeah. <laughs> it's a Tillmore tractor. Um, yeah, and it's it's a tool carrier that's you know based off of like the – it's similar to a uh, Alice Chalmers G, but – has more room under between the wheels and the driver has a little uh, possibly better visibility. They've got really nice lights so you can see everything when you're running it. It's got hydraulic, um, you know, raise and lower on the front and the back, um, you know, and it, there are hundreds of different tools you could hook to it. Yeah. Um, and I particularly like the system that I allowed to take on and off the, uh, the, the implements too. They have this hoist that kind of integrates. So it's super easy to take like a basket weeder off and put something else on. Yeah. That, that whole changing out the belly mount, that uh, little crane that they have set up and it just goes on a pin on the front and you can easily stick it on there, move your basket weeder off and uh, move. I've got another toolbar that has the a blades and finger weeders on it. Yes. And so I swapped that out and, like you know i'm just i just got this a month and a half ago and you know i've done that swap probably five times and the whole thing start to finish takes less than five minutes Man. for a newbie <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and no well, weight on yourself either yeah so let's talk a little bit about that because i think a lot of people are sometimes hesitant to actually spend money because these tools are not cheap and i don't expect them to be cheap because there's a lot of incredible engineering and just machining cost that goes into them but you've got the, let's say the old tractor and which as you said is breaking down all the time and the chain stuff on that you have to go find stuff and custom make stuff because the old it's all old mm -hmm. where this is a modern brand new it's saving you massive amounts of time Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's an important point for people to understand is that, you know, time is money. And yes, when you're first starting, you may not have the the money, but you probably have the time to learn. But now you've been farming long enough where you've, you've figured out what your systems are, what makes sense, and you're ready to invest in something that's going to save you a heck of a lot of time. Absolutely. And being timely makes a big difference too. You know, like, Sometimes, like before this storm came in, there was a small window when the ground was actually dry enough that I could cultivate it and get in there and make a pass before the storm came and, you know, knock out some of these weeds. So absolutely, like, those planting windows and cultivation windows, you know, it makes a difference if you're able to, if your equipment works and cranks when you want it and, you know, it's already dialed in and just ready to roll. Um, and those toolbars really help you keep a setup, you know, that, that is already dialed in and you're not having to swap stuff out every time you want to change implements. It's, it's a real easy swap. Yeah. And so that's what we would refer to as opportunity time cost. Yeah, right. Of, you know, if you have, let's say you need to cultivate a half acre of carrots before it gets, you know, the rain comes in tomorrow and you're able to do it. And it, you know, then the sun comes out and it, it cooks all the weeds and then it rains and, and you've got clean carrots compared to, you know, oh, I need to go cultivate carrots and the, tr the tractor won't crank. So you go put a battery thing on it you go do something else and you come back <laughs> and you realize you'd actually left the lights on. And so that continued to drain it. And then by the time it's all ready to go, it's three o'clock and you may run over the carrots at that point, but that's, that's almost a waste because it's only a couple hours till dark and the reeds are going to reroute that night when the rain comes. That's right. 
So, you know, we do um, have a, we have a power ox, which um, they are been super uh, gracious to let me borrow for the last year to play around with. And uh, we've done a number of different iterations on it and we've been really happy with having a one row basket weeder on that. So that's kind of what we're set up with right now. Um, and we're set up with that right now, mainly because we're still seeing a very high weed pressure to our farm. So we're really spacing out the rows. So we're on 15 inch centers, which is allowing us to do, you know, finger and, um, and basket weeding on everything on the farm. Nice. So that's kind of how we're set up now, but now will we change that in the future? Absolutely. We're going to, you know, get them closer because the other thing too, is as our farm stand sales increase, we'll need more product. So obviously right. you close the rows up, there's going to be a lot less weeds Our soil organic matter is organic and our soil health will go up, which will means we can produce more a crop per acre too. So yeah. Now, one of the things about having a heavier soil is that allows you to keep a longer term nutrition in it. Um, except for the area that obviously you scraped all the topsoil off. Talk to us about your nutrition program. How do you work that? Yeah, so we use uh, a combination of, of different things. Uh, we've got a locally made uh, humic compost that is made by a company called Decker Dirt. Okay. <clears throat> they're, they're just down in, um, not Crawford, um, forgetting that. Anyway, they're just down the road from us about uh, 20 minutes. And they uh, have come out and taken soil samples and send them off to their lab. Uh, I think at K state. Um, okay. And have mixed a, a compost blend for us with lime added uh, for our, our garden needs. Um, and so we've used like roughly uh, three quarters of a five gallon bucket of that humic compost per bed. Uh, our beds are on five foot centers and they're hundred feet long or 96 feet long between 96 and hundred. Um, and we've kind of kept them all, or we have kept them all standardized except for one small field that's 50 foot beds. Um, so we use the Decker dirt and then we also create some of our own compost here on site with, uh, I collect coffee grounds from two local uh, places here in town and in the back of one of the restaurants that we sell to, you know, all their pre, um, like this isn't the food that's gone out to the customer, but the, the scraps of the vegetables and the eggshells and coffee grounds and tea bags. Um, so we make a compost there on site that we spread over fields that we're going to cover crop. Okay. Um, so we use some cover crops and try to do, you know, a section each each year, whether it's summer cover crops like the pea, um, or like right now we've got a really nice stand of um, English pea or field pea, uh, oats and vetch. Um, and then there, we also are currently using a product called Nature Safe that is a um, derived from uh, chicken feathers. Uh, it's like bone meal, feather meal, and blood meal all together um, in an 844 product that we're only using like uh, four pounds to the bed on that. So, um, Very yeah, cool. Get, yeah. So, and you feel like that's enough fertility for what you're trying to do? There's a few things that we do put a little bit of uh, like fish emulsion through the drip and seaweed mixed together. Um, okay. fertigation style 
Yeah. So like our longer standing crops, like our sweet peppers and hot peppers, um, tomatoes, even the squash as it's getting towards the end, we've, we've given things like that an extra little, uh, dose of the fish emulsion through, um, a siphon system in our fertigation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about shifting more to the management side of farming. What is like a typical week look like? How do you have that week set up on the farm? Yeah. So I actually use one of your, uh, one of your files as an outline for the week. Um, Yes. Yeah. I've been using that for, I think I learned about that at Ray's uh, workshop that you did years ago. Maybe you shared it then either way, or maybe it was through the SFU. Um, I've been using that for a couple of years now to make a notebook, you know, every, the beginning of every week, like I try to do a field walk on Sunday afternoon Mm -hmm. and do my outline for the week and text my guys kind of their list that they need to get started on, on Monday morning. Um, and then, you know, so Monday is like a seeding day and field work. Okay. And then Tuesdays, you know, during the CSA is a, CSA harvest and prep and pack and distribute day and a couple of like farm cleanup things may happen. Wednesday is another, you know, field work day um, or special projects that we have. Thursday, we're doing another CSA harvest, uh, distribute and possible other little, little field tasks like, you know, maybe some seeding or something needs to be done that day. And then Friday, um, during the market season, the summer, and this is our first year to do a, a fall market on Saturdays. Uh, we are harvesting for market in the morning and then, um, you know, doing more field work or planting or projects uh, for that afternoon. And Saturday mornings, we're going to market and having the rest of the day for family. Nice. I'm glad that you're actually utilizing that, that sheet. And yeah, that, that sheet, and we actually have a whole system around that sheet was created from our farm, just kind of how we had set up the different days of the week. And because what's so important, if you can learn the batch on your farm, just like do deep work on very specific sections, um, then you can get so much more done than just moving from thing to thing to thing and doing so many different things every day. Yeah, absolutely. And when you can get your whole team working on one project, you know, teamwork really makes the dream work. That's something yes. we love to say. And it's, it, it really makes everything flow so much smoother and you miss less details when you're, when you're all working together, keeping each other in check. Yeah. Yeah. What does the uh, communication look like? How do you communicate with your team? And uh, do you have like a, an app or do you use just like whiteboards? You know, we, we mostly just use text message. Um, we, we tried to set up like a, a Google Docs thing and it just, we just never uh, really got it into practice. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of old school in it with a, a notebook every week anyway, making that list. And I haven't really uh, put it into any, any app or anything. Um, you know, I'll send them a picture of the list and they work off of that, or I'll, sometimes I'll type it out and text it if I don't have my list with me when I'm, when I'm sending the message to them. But mostly it's, it's, you know, we have our weekly stuff that they know these are the, the things we're going to be doing. 
Yes. And then, you know, like those, like the harvest that's every Tuesday, every Thursday, every Friday, they, they know that. So, and then seeding every Monday, they're seeding lettuce and microgreens. We're seeding microgreens twice a week, every okay. single week anyway. So. All right. And how, and those microgreens, are those going to the CSA or at the market? What's the, the sales outlet for those? Both. Uh, and, uh, you know, small orders to restaurants. Um, but yeah, we, we sell every week they're getting a select, they get to select one bag of, or one container of our microgreens as part of the CSA. Um, and then we sell them, you know, at the farmer's market as um, like, we'll fresh cut them there. We'll have some already pre-cut and bagged in either bags or clamshells. And then we also sell the little bootstrap farmer five by five tray of okay. living microgreens. Yeah. Fascinating. So let's talk about the, um, the challenges of running a farm. So the farm, you know, it, it can be challenging every day. What would you say the hardest part about running a farm is? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that question and it, you know, every, every big thing seems like the hardest thing when, when you're tackling it, you know, and about, and it's coming up, it's like on the horizon but then like, once you get past it, it, those things don't seem as big. So like looking back, I couldn't think of like the one hardest deal, but, you know, making the decision to uh, get financing for the tractor that I just bought, you know, like there was no way I could pay for it. I didn't have enough savings to pay for it. And so like actually taking out a loan is that was a, a pretty big decision for us. We've, we've kept, uh, the farm, like, but we've kept it rolling with very minimal debt, yeah. Um, to this point, and so, like, taking out debt on it, it has I'd say that's been my my biggest hurdle, uh, so far as like seeking funding. Um, this just this year, I've finally applied for a high tunnel when we've been in business since 2011, yeah. had a site you know that we could put one on since 2016. And here it is 2020 and I've just applied and, and have got and getting it. Yeah. So with that, the financing, so for the tractor, did you go with a, an agricultural lender or how did you finance that? I actually just went through my local bank that I, I bank through. Um, and, you know, interest rates right now are pretty good. I think we got yes. it at 3.8 for a five year. Wow. Um, so yeah, it, I just went through that. I, I looked at some other options, but they were, they were just as uh, competitive. So. Yeah, absolutely. And working with a local banker is something that's so important because they know your track record. They know uh, it, how you operate. And so they have a really good idea of what that business looks like. Yeah. Who would you say have been your mentors over the years as you've been on your farming journey? So I, I would say my mentors, um, you know, one of them, one of the main ones has been uh, Mr. Bill Miller, who is my landowner, um, you know, and, and encouraged me, encouraging me to build out a, a farm on his place. Mm. Um, you know, that's been a big part. Um, and then I worked for a year and a half, well, it was close to two years with Will Reed. At okay. Native Sun Farm in Tupelo. Yes. Yep. And he's he's got a larger operation. Um, he started a year before me in 2010, 
and um you know has an amazing place going up there and and is really hustling to keep it working and and keep it growing you know better every year so getting to work with him for two years and built multiple high tunnels with him um and getting to operate his his farm was was like you can't put a price on what that was um and you know i just spoke with him for a few minutes right before we got on the call you know about a question about some rain gear that i had so we still chat back and forth and then ray tyler um at rose creek you know i actually took my wife there and visited him on our uh honeymoon or not our honeymoon sorry on our anniversary one year okay Um, and you know also going and visiting him uh at his different workshops that he's had and then, and conversing with him uh, through Instagram and, and a few phone calls. He's been uh, a big part in us really being more profitable and growing lettuce pretty much year round now. Um, You know, and not just lettuce, it's improved all of our crop growing. uh, But the lettuce masterclass is kind of the, the lead into that. Yeah. And then I'd also say, you know, listen, to your podcast uh listening to the farmer to farmer i listened to every one of those farmer to farmers when they were as Mm -hmm. they were coming out and Mm -hmm. have gone back and re-listened um and i highly recommend folks giving them a search um and then diego and curtis's uh episodes when when he was doing the small farms uh farm small farm smart um you know listening to curtis go through that's actually what got me started growing microgreens was watching how he was doing it. And, you know, I started out with some sunflowers and it's grown into a pretty nice chunk of our business. Yeah. Um, So would you say there's others growing microgreens in your area or are you the only game in town? I'm the only farm in my town doing it. Um, There's a, another guy, you know, North of me, probably 50 miles or something. And maybe there's somebody to the, town over that yeah there is somebody 30 miles away in the next town over doing it um but yeah so i'm the only one locally but a few other folks are maybe selling to some of the restaurants here but i'm really the only place that people get them at our market okay okay and are you more of the just cotyledon only or do you let the first tree leaf come well not for shoots but for more the actual microgreens yeah, so it, it depends on the crop. Like dill, you know, we let it develop uh, a true leaf. Typically, we harvest the broccoli, the micro, all the brassicas before a true leaf, but okay. sometimes we'll let them go longer. Um, we use Vermont Compost Fort V, and so they grow really robust and yes. can stay in a microgreen tray for, you know, easily two weeks before they've sucked all those nutrients out of there so um you know some of them can go even longer than that so you know depending on sales that's that's part of why we don't cut everything before the market is because if we don't use it all at the farmer's market we can still use it next tuesday you know we just keep it alive you know in the tray and yeah it goes to the next market yeah. And we actually were to the point where we had a special shelf in our walk-in cooler that we would slide trays in if they were a little on the big side so we could hold them a little bit longer. Be handy to have a walk-in cooler. You know, that that's something that a piece that they recommend, like the very first thing you need to have as a market gardener is a walk-in cooler. 
and we've operated to this point without one. Um, oh my we have gosh. Just a small two door cooler and we've made it work. We actually don't have electricity on our farm. Um, which I'm and, still blown away by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, you know, I, it's on my list of things to do though. It it's yeah. going to happen this year. <laughs> yeah. I, we do have a walk-in cooler and I'm actually kicking myself that I didn't actually do a double walk-in cooler where I basically have a walk-in and then a walk-in warm cooler because, you know, you always need those. Yeah. Um, but we just, yeah, it, it wasn't in the cards to put those both in. And I know we will eventually, but so we do have, it's a, I think it's 11 by 10 or so walk-in um, powered by a cool bot. And we, uh, yeah, I've been running it the last week just to make sure it all run, works well. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, what do you pay for 11 by 10? Yeah, well, it's a massive range. So obviously, if you can go out, if you want to, and go right to coolbot.com and buy a ready-to-made um, with a floor, with you know roof covering, all the bells and whistles, I think it's like 8,500 bucks. And mm. that's, that's great. That's nice. Um, you can buy panels uh, for super cheap. I mean, we've got our panels for the double, and we're selling the walk-in uh, freezer side of it. Um, we paid 3,500 for the, basically it was 24 by 10. And so it had oh. two doors, all the panels, the roof, the floor on the freezer side of it. And, um, yeah. And, uh, so yeah, so maybe like two grand for our regular cooler. And then obviously your cool bots around $400 and your, uh, your air conditioner, if you get the 24,000 BTU one from LG is going to be around like 600 bucks. Um, mm. so you're looking at three, 3,000, 3,500. And then of course you have to wire it. Of course I did the wiring myself, um, mm -hmm. just because I can, and I actually kind of like it. It's kind of fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I spend way too much time in the office these days. So anytime I can get outside and do stuff, even if it's probably not the most, the best use of my time, it's, it, it's allows me to get out there and spend some time with the kids. Cause the kids get to come out and hang out with me while I'm doing it. Oh yeah. But, and to flex that muscle of, of doing a, a, yeah. A manual task that takes a little bit of mind energy, but uh, yeah, I love doing projects as well. Yes. Yeah. And so another thing in the cooler we did, actually we have a video on our Facebook and YouTube that folks should check out that should be coming out here relatively shortly, or it's actually probably by the time this airs, it will already be out, but it's called four tips to uh, like, or more efficiency in your walk-in cooler. But if you search our channel for walk-in cooler, it'll come up and we basically walk you through the four top things you need to think about as you're building a walk-in cooler. Nice. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there, uh, I would never start a farm without one. And again, we started <laughs> where we started with a three door display cooler. We absolutely started that way. And then we went to, um, a walk-in cooler that we bought the panels for, I think a hundred bucks is <laughs> one of wow. those things. And the guy was like, yeah, well, you showed up and you got these, like, I've had 20 calls since you, you know, confirmed that you were coming to pick these up and people wanted them to pay them a lot more. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those key things because you harvest beans on a Monday and you just drop them in the walk-in cooler and don't think about them till Saturday. They can just come right out of the cooler to the market and don't have to think about, you know, so it takes so much pressure off you as a farmer. Um, and uh, like one of the things we obviously needed it because we're doing mushroom production. And so we needed a place to store the blocks because yeah. your blocks come 200 at a time on a pallet. And I do not want to fruit 200 at a time because that's uh, way, way, way more than we would ever need. And so this will allow us to put them in there and pull out 30, 40 at a time and fruit them as we start to build up our sales channel for the mushrooms. Awesome. So, so talk about a little bit about going back. If you could do the entire farm over, 
what would you, uh, you know, go back and do sooner rather than later? Hmm. So, you know, I, I say comes back to getting the, the financing a little earlier. Uh, you know, if we had gotten a little more capital built into our, our farm a little sooner, I think we could have been, have things rolling, you know, buying a walk-in cooler, setting up a, a, a proper wash pack stand. Um, you know, I think those things would have helped. Uh, other than that, you know, re redoing all that we've done to learn to this point, you know, I, and I hate, I can't really see another way because, you know, being able to work on another farm was uh, crucial to being able to do what we do now. Um, you know, if I had the magic reset button, it would be putting in that, that critical infrastructure up front in 2016 when we started on this property that we're on, you know, with the mm-hmm. walk-in cooler and a wash pack building and a separate tool storage area that's not just a shipping container. <laughs> yeah. And we actually have a resource for folks. So for, folks are looking to figure out the funding side. If you go to growingfarmers.com forward slash fund, we have a mini course all around funding your farm. So make sure you do check that out. Cause I, I actually agree with you that, you know, having the right infrastructure, as long as you know what you're doing, um, <laughs> having that right infrastructure is super key to being able to scale quickly because yeah. If you don't, you're setting yourself up these little stations to do this, that, and the other and trying to, you know, I know a farmer that was literally driving 30 minutes to put lettuce in a cooler. And that's not how you should be spending your nights and weekends. Um, right. You should be spending that with people you love. So having that, that funding is just so key. With that, I'd like to stop here and take a quick break. In a minute, we'll be back with Sam McElmore from Bountiful Harvest Farms. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick back with more of the Sam McElmore episode from Bountiful Harvest Farm. Sam, talk to us about your team. Yeah, so currently we've got um, two awesome guys that are both uh, out of college, but working on uh, kind of they're building up their own kind of entities. One's actually a, a track runner um, and looking to go to the Olympics, which unfortunately was canceled this year Ooh, yeah. uh, or postponed till next year. So we're hoping he's able to do that next year. And then um, our other guys building up his own um, health and nutrition and uh, outdoor lifestyle kind of uh, company and looking to go to grad school for nutrition. Uh, so he's a really good one to have at market with us to uh, absolutely you know, talk about the nutrition aspects of the different stuff we're selling. Um, you know, those two guys are, they do the bulk of the work with me. And then, as I mentioned, uh, Mr. Bill Miller, who owns the property, does a lot of tractor work uh, for us and with us and, you know, other planting and seeding things. Um, 
and then we've you know during the summer and and peak season we'll kind of add in a couple of other part-timers uh to help you know harvest in the larger crops and this fall i've got a guy that's interested in learning about he, he wants to start his own farm he's about 30 miles south of us um and is driving up once a week to work with us on our harvest day and do a little bit of the the field work that we do on thursdays um and to be able to ask me questions you know while we're working and and uh-huh. kind of get a feel for what you know this growing is all about and what it's like uh so but he's been a great worker to have uh you know, I'll have him at least for this fall. And, uh, it's been fun, uh, you know, doing the teaching side. And then usually during the summer, we do get a, uh, horticulture student, uh, from the university as an intern as well, a paid internship. Okay. So now do, how do you select that? Do they work with you on that program or? Uh, so each of the horticulture students is required to do at least one internship, you know, during their four years, uh, there in the program. Okay. And so, you know, me, since I went through the landscape contracting program, part of it is horticulture and I was part of the horticulture club, you know, during college. And so I've got connection with, with the, uh, professors there. Um, and so they've, you know, often recommended us as, as a place to check out, especially if somebody's not going home, you know, if they're staying, keeping their apartment, you know, it's a place that they can work here and stay in Starkville for the summer rather than having to move and pay another apartment rent somewhere else or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So with finding these teams, how are this team, how have you, how have you managed that? <laughs> you know, actually pretty much everybody's come to me, um, you know, whether they've been a phone call or an email. Um, and usually I get multiple calls a year, uh, especially, you know, at the beginning of the semesters, uh, there's college students with time that, or, you know, in, in some cases it's uh, somebody that moved here with uh, their significant other is going to vet school um, mm-hmm. or something like that. And so, uh you know, the, it'll start with a call typically, Hey, do you have work? And I'm, you know, whether I do at the time or don't, you know, is that answer, but I'll, I usually say, you know, please send us a resume, um, an email, you know, to our bountiful harvest farms at gmail.com. And, you know, if, if we're not able to help you out right now, or, you know, bring you on right now, maybe there's a time in the future that we can. And, you know, if they've sent us that email, we can pull up, you know, do a quick email search of resumes and, and see who we could call on. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So with the, the team, you've got the team, you've got the farm. Now you've grown all these great vegetables. How are you selling them? Yeah. So our main market is um, our 60 member this year, uh, CSA, and we do three 10 week seasons. Um, and we kind of, typically base them around the uh, semester calendar here, being that we're in a college town. Okay. So a, a spring CSA that starts with strawberries, you know, right after spring break and ends right at the end of the semester in May. And then we go right into a 10 week summer CSA that goes through the end of July. We take that fall break uh, or uh, late summer break, August and September and, you know, plant out all of our fall crops and get our summer crops out of the way, at least some of them. 
um, and then do a fall that's uh, October into December. And then we also sell at our uh, community market on Saturdays. It's mainly been in the summer um, in past years. And then this year is our first time to do a fall Saturday market. Um, and then we sell to restaurants and uh, some local florist with our cut flowers. And we do a, a hot pepper that I mentioned before for the a restaurant that they buy every red hot pepper we can produce of, you know, the, the varieties that they already selected for us to grow. And how did that collaboration come about? Um, I had a few hot peppers that they liked and they were, they were already buying, you know, weekly vegetables from me. Um, this is restaurant Tyler, local restaurant here in town. Uh, they've been, you know, very supportive through the years, just taking little bits and big bits of whatever I had and, and, you know, using it there in their restaurant. And they got the idea to start making a hot sauce and, you know, they're like, how many peppers can you grow us? I was like, I don't know, but we'll, you know, we'll plant 10 hundred foot beds and see, and we've gotten better at, you know, growing better peppers each year. And they've kind of varied the, the varieties that they've selected. And I think we're, you know, possibly got the ones that they like, but each year it's been a little different with our production. Last year we had some, a whole lot of super hots uh, this year. We didn't do as many of the super hot like habanero and ghost pepper, um, but a lot of Thai chili, cayenne, um, Fresnos, jalapenos, and then uh, we grow an heirloom for them that they're looking to make a, uh, a single pepper sauce with it. It's, it's a, called a Mississippi rooster spur, and it's real similar to a Tabasco. Okay. Um, those are not the most fun to harvest. Um, but it, it works out being that, you know, they'll buy everyone we, we can grow to red. So, uh, it kind of makes it work out. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. And I would, and so when you say every single year you've gotten better at it, what would you say some of the keys to growing good hot peppers are? You know, for us growing them with the landscape fabric and you could use plastic, but I like reusable landscape fabric. Uh, we're growing them, you know, at one foot spacing, two rows to the bed. And um, they do better. I didn't trellis them this year. And some of the varieties are okay with that. But some of them uh, get so heavy, they, they yeah. need trellising. But uh, I think getting our nutrition up with our Decker Dirt and the Nature Safe, and then also using um, the fish emulsion and seaweed, uh, fertigation has really helped produce a, a, this has been our best year yet. And I think we could do a little bit better next year. Um, just with a little more trellising. Yeah. I actually am thinking through your recipe for fertility and I might even double or triple your fertility. Yeah. I, I, especially peppers, they really need some bigger shots of, and they really respond to it. I think the best peppers I ever saw was where someone had basically cleaned out a chicken coop and <laughs> just put all that manure in a bed and then put the, the peppers in it. And the peppers were literally six feet tall. Yeah. So we, we did it on a small section this year was we did double it and okay. it, it was noticeable. And that is our plan for next year. Yes. Uh, and we were looking at doing a trial of double and, and some that was triple. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's always something we'll mess with. Like our winter greens one year, we did try the difference and I didn't see a huge difference. I will try it again once we have the new tunnels up on this new soil type, because it's a brand new soil type, but it's always interesting to vary the amounts. And it comes back to really, I think your soil, your biological activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were at a conference in new, um, in uh, Vermont the last summer, I think the, the frozen ground conference that Sandy Arnold runs. And we had people on one end of the room putting down a hundred pounds of, you know, pot, uh, potash. And then we had some people, you know, putting down like 800 pounds of potassium. Um, so, you know, it's just, it, it varies all over the place with, you know, what people are putting down, but what they found is, you know, tomatoes, you can't actually put enough fertility down for some of these new hybrids that are grafted. They yeah. just, they'll use it all up. Right. So blows your mind. Let's talk about new farmers. You've been farming for a while. You've seen probably some come and some go. What would you say one of the biggest mistakes new beginning farmers make is? You know, going too big, too much diversity, too fast, I think is, is probably the biggest mistake I see and, and kind of feel like we went a little too diverse with what we were growing too fast. We didn't necessarily go too big, but um, one of the other kind of there where you've just got so many irons in the fire that you can't focus on, you know, growing a few crops really well and, and figure out really the basics of growing before you, you know, try to take on too much. Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you, any crops specifically you think they should avoid their first year? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, the, anything that, that takes a lot longer would, would be something that I'd, I'd question, you know, to start out with those quick succession crops, I think makes the most sense because you can get your, you can get the ball rolling because you can plant so many of successions of those. Whereas like some of your long season crops like tomatoes or, like strawberries or ginger Um, yeah or ginger or turmeric yeah those i think they require a little more nuance and uh yeah just more more time and attention to them and it's not that you shouldn't grow them at all but you know growing a whole bunch of them uh could really stretch you too thin and you just not get a good return on them yeah did you see that picture that ray posted of that ginger yeah, that thing was yeah. massive. Yeah. yeah, I think he's got his macro lens out again or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, it's really interesting because Ray has been, and he's been, we've been talking back and forth about this a lot is his fertility program. And he's been working really hard to get the macros and the micros all lined up. And the yield for that ginger is absolutely something you can get. And I'll be completely honest, when we grew ginger, we weren't at one quarter of that yield. I mean, mm. our tops look great, but we had no, our hands were nowhere near that big. Wow. So dialing in that fertility and just having that, you know, decade of experience of, you know, management and growing is, is just so key. Yeah. And the, the extra heat from, yeah, uh, from those tunnels and, you know, protection from the so much just rain just washes away so much of our fertility in the field, I believe, you know, yeah. It, it, it causes so much of it to move that the tunnels really, you almost can get into the opposite problem in the tunnel of it being so salt heavy. Yeah. Too fertile. And that's interesting because that's something he's looked at and we haven't seen, we've looked at a soil test for years and now he's now consistently in tunnels. So after a couple of years, it'll be interesting to see if they, they spike, but so far they haven't, which has been yeah. very interesting. 
I guess as long as you're pulling out, you know, yeah, so much produce that, that that's pulling out a lot of those nutrients too. And I think the consistent irrigation. So, I mean, one of the problems I think farmers do with tunnels is like you plant your tomatoes, you put your drip irrigation in, and then you literally don't water the paths. And so, mm-hmm. of course, you're going to have problems with salts in your paths because there's literally been no um, rain, uh, water movement to move it down through the profile. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, a problem right there. If you could pick one, what would be your favorite farming tool? <laughs> you know, I want two of those there. Yes, but, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I thought about this one pretty for a little bit. And really the five drawer toolbox in the back of my truck is organized with a couple of simple labels and what's in each drawer. And that thing has made it so easy to get repairs done, you know, easily. I can tell somebody, go look in the back of my truck, the toolbox, grab the screwdriver or grab the nut driver, or grab the wrenches, you know, they're labeled right there. You pull out the drawer and it's sitting there. Uh, that toolbox has really been a handy tool. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what are the different uh, focuses of each of the drawers? Do you have like a plumbing one, an electric one? A, well, you know? So I've just got, it's real simple. It's just, uh, there's a small drawer that's got some miscellaneous items on top. Uh, yeah. Electrical like, tape, duct tape. Uh, yep. And, uh, you know, air uh, PSI meter, yep. you know, for your tires and, and such. And then uh, screwdrivers yep. and, and nut drivers are there. And then wrenches, then hammers, and yes. then my socket drawer. Okay. <laughs> that's it. Yes. That's so key. Yeah. Having that stuff instantly available when you're fixing something so important. And, it, you, and that it goes back in the right spot too. Yes. Yes. You know where to find it the next time. Do you carry a pocket knife with you? I do. Yep. I've, you know, I've, I've got a personal pocket knife and then I always have one of those, uh, Victoria Knox, um, little red handled from Johnny's, uh, harvest knife, the serrated yep. model. And Can't I wish that. that they, they, they're, they have the wrong sheath. Their sheath is a left-handed sheath. <laughs> it's well, my only complaint with those sheets. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, it's made out of like, what is it? Like a, almost like a vinyl, not a vinyl, but like a, it's a synthetic fabric. And the, Yeah, it's a nylon fabric. Nylon, yeah. And it's not the greatest, I just not, yeah, it just sometimes doesn't slide in really easy. It'd be nice if that was lined with actually like a plastic. It, it does have a plastic uh, little liner that it snaps oh, they do. into on the inside. Yeah, it does. Oh, so it, that it's a have... real, it holds it really well. Um, it's just like you can take that out and and sanitize it even yeah clean it and sanitize it and then yeah it's left-handed <laughs> okay so they must it's have updated that since way. i i i bought mine because i've had mine for quite a while yeah I, I get uh a new one of those for the crew like in the spring and in the fall um everybody gets a new new sheath and knife and the sheath is more expensive than the knife but uh it's been worth it to have you know to have that and it's got the little clip that'll clip on you know shorts or your pocket you don't have to be wearing a belt for it um and it's not very heavy and so they stay on pretty well nice do you believe that now is the best time to be starting a farm i do man there's so much uh interest and renewed interest in in growing food and you know especially with you know potential disruptions there's you know, more people are looking for more local options. Um, there's more information than ever out there. 
you know, with you guys are, and tons of people are putting out information that helps people grow better and grow more profitably and grow better food for us um, that, you know, we, we haven't reached, you know, we haven't met the demand here in just our local town and, you know, there's so many uh, good places to grow, you know, good places to farm um, with plenty of water, you know, here in the East, we have a lot of water, but we're not producing as much yes. uh, food as they are out West, but you know, the, the possibilities are there and you know, the demand I, I think is there and even more, even higher this year. And, you know, growing transplants, the, if you grew garden transplants this spring, you know, you were on a, sitting on a gold mine because everybody planted a garden this year. Um, and those that did and failed are going to probably be looking for their local farmer and really appreciate you that much more, you know, now that they've tried to grow tomatoes yes. and cucumbers, and, you know, and some of it worked and some didn't. Yeah, absolutely. So is there a question you'd wished I asked that I haven't mm. or a topic? You know, back to the new farmer advice, I meant to mention, you know, start slow and grow into it. I kind of, kind of did say that about the going too big, too much diversity, but um, just to get started growing something and, and sell it, you know, you yes. gotta, it's not just growing it and saying, Oh, look, I've got this beautiful lettuce. You've got to be able to sell it and, and get it into people's hands and on their plates. Um, and, you know, as a, as a farmer, I, you know, got into this, you know, with the idealistic kind of mindset of I'm going to grow my food and I'm not going to use all these inputs of, you know, whatever. And, you know, now I'm purchasing inputs, but it it's, I'm growing way more food than if I wasn't purchasing the inputs. So I've kind of given in on some of my idealism. I think Curtis Stone says it well, of, you know, you can have it, but put that idealism in your back pocket as a businessman, you know, mm -hmm. you need to make the business work. Um, and it can, can work. And this is a, a fun business to do a fun business to be in an exciting time to be in it. Yeah. You know, I've worked with a lot of farmers and I've talked to a lot of farmers and it's really interesting, the different uh, worldviews that everyone has. Everyone has a little bit of a different worldview. And I was had, I was with one highly respected farmer riding around and he basically said, I don't want you to video this part of the farm. And the reason that was, is that that was an agritourism part of the farm. And anyway, it, long story short, but he was, he said that wasn't real farming. And, uh, you know, with our new farm, we'll be having a fair amount of agritourism. And again, what is agritourism? Is it a haunted hay maze or is it giving tours of the farm? Is it like a foodie walk to give people learn more about how their food is grown? Obviously you can tweak it whatever way you want. And, you know, this, this fall, we actually did a pumpkin stand. You know, we have 12,000 cars a day that go by our property. And so we brought in pumpkins. We didn't even grow them. We brought them in and uh, just set it up in our yard and, and, and pretty much sold all the pumpkins that we bought. And, you know, on one aspect of that, you know, people be like, oh my gosh, he's a sellout. You know, he's just buying in <laughs> produce and selling it. And, yes, if that was the reason for it, if that reason was, if, I guess if that's how you want to, and I, in a couple of years ago, when I was farming in New York, I absolutely believe that because we were a producer only farmer's market and we only sold what we grew. Mm -hmm. But 
for us, it was a opportunity to minister the community because there was no one in town selling pumpkins. And we have a 5,000 person community here. And we really wanted to develop ourselves as that central location for them to learn about agriculture, learn about food and say, this is our local farm. And whether or not we, be we believe that people believe that, you know, their local farm would have pumpkins. And so that's something that we'll probably continue to do. We probably still won't continue to grow them because I can't grow them for 19 cents a pound, which is what I can buy them for. Wow. So, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, we're absolutely, and, and yeah, so we are having to put a little bit of my idealism of, yes, I grow everything that I produce and to realize that we're changing a little bit to, we are our local communities. Uh, connection to good food and learning about farming and, uh, and where their food comes from. So um, yeah, you're right. I think the idealism part has hurt so many farmers and actually put farmers out of business. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, bringing the, the agritourism part of it, we, we do, you pick strawberries um, each spring and, and that's been a huge uh, driver for our CSA sales is, you know, people learn about us by coming to the UPIC strawberries and, and then wind up asking more questions and, and that winds up turning into a better sale through the CSA. Um, and we've also, you know, had tons of school trips. I get calls of, I usually visit multiple classes a year, um, college all the way down to, you know, preschool classes and, and give a farmer talk. Okay. Um, and it takes some of my time, but I really enjoy speaking. I enjoy presenting, you know, I've talked to multiple garden clubs um, and uh, each of the garden clubs has wound up in, you know, a couple of those ladies will wind up and being part of the CSA there as well, or at least coming and shopping with me at the market. So, you know, I don't turn down those, those opportunities. I'll be speaking at a college class this Friday. And even so, hmm. um, you know, I, those opportunities are out there to expose more young people to what we're doing. And I I'm in it for the education. I come from a line of, you know, a family line of educators. Um, and my, my wife's family's uh, multi-generation educators as well. And so teaching about what we're doing is definitely a big part of, of what we do. Absolutely. Where can people find out more about you and what you do? Yeah, so checking us out, our website at bountifulharvestfarms.com. Uh, send us an email to bountifulharvestfarms at gmail.com. Um, we're on Facebook. Uh, I don't manage that Facebook page as well, you know, as most people probably, you know, at Bountiful Harvest Farms, uh, Starkville. Well, I, I think you can just find us, Bountiful Harvest Farms there. And then my Instagram, um, uh, my branding is way off on this, but it's Macklemore Sam. Um, and I've built up a, a page there, you know, with a lot of our farm photos from my perspective, <clears throat> it's not as salesy as I probably should be, uh, by creating a, a farm, you know, Instagram page, but, um, uh, that's how I've done it so far. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, it seems to be working well, Sam, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing your journey and your expertise with our listeners and, uh, keep up the good work. Thanks, Michael. Looking to start or grow your farm business. You need a compelling farm plan that you can share with investors, convince your significant other with, or just to give yourself peace of mind. We have created a new program called the Start Your Farm Intensive. 
In it, you'll learn how to develop your farm idea to make sure you take all the factors into consideration for your context and your climate. You'll learn how to craft a one-page business plan that helps clearly define your target customer and lay out the necessary characteristics of your business. You will understand the three financial documents that every farm needs to fill out to make sure you are making money. And we'll give you all that as templates too. So you have the templates to fill out for your farm business. We'll also go through funding. So where to go for funding for the various stages and parts of your business. Starting a farm is hard. Starting a farm without a proven plan is almost impossible. Join us today. Go to growingfarmers.com forward slash start for more information. Now, what did past students have to say? Corey says, the exercises and spreadsheets helped me make the learning process easier and more real. Jenna says, I gained the support system and resources I needed for when I'm ready for the next step. And finally, the worksheets make you think out every aspect of the business step by step. Go ahead, join us today, growingfarmers.com forward slash start. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Next week on the podcast, I'm talking to Ethan Norvell, who is going to share all about the 18,000 square foot hydroponic lettuce production facility he helps manage in Mississippi. It's a fascinating conversation. We talk all things about how the, the crop cycle works, how the actual growing techniques of the, um, the hydroponic system is. We talk about his background before he got into the job. And uh, we just kind of talk about what it's been like to run a business and how it's changed during this uh, year of COVID and all the different little tricks that they use to grow beautiful lettuce 12 months out of the year. So join me next week as I talk to Ethan. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.